You're listening to The College Connection from New England Public Radio. Professor Patricia DeBartolo, Department Chair of Psychology at Smith College, recently spoke about her research regarding perfectionism. When Brilliance Backfires, Perfectionism's Cutting Edge, was recorded on Tuesday, February 9th, 2016, in Seeley Hall at Smith College. So generally, I'm going to talk about three big questions. One is, what is it? What is perfectionism? And the field has actually spent a lot of time figuring that out, and it's taken a long time because I try to explain to my students all the time that psychology is about taking abstract, fuzzy concepts and somehow making them concrete and observable and measurable. And it's taken us a very long time to figure out what the pieces and parts are. And then the what then. So once you define it, what is it associated with or correlated with? And then finally, what, what can we do about it? Um, and I'm going to focus here a bit, given the context, talking a, a, about what we can do educationally about perfectionism. And I'm going to spend some time putting my faculty director cap on and telling you a little bit about work that I've been involved in recently on program evaluation of what, what's been happening here at Smith to try to understand how we can um, engage students in inclusive excellence in the sciences. So uh, really, the title of the talk was inspired by a column that I wrote uh, about a year ago now. And it was in reaction to a paper um, and it was uh, done by uh, Leslie et al. in 2015, in which what they did was they went around and they asked people within different disciplines what their ideas were about uh, their, a, a person's capacity to succeed in a discipline. So they went and asked philosophers, what do you need to be a good philosopher? And, th and they went and asked music composers the same questions and scientists of all different ilks. And what they tended to find is that when a, a field endorsed strongly that someone had to be born with or to, to present with some kind of natural, raw, God-given kinds of talent, that what was really interesting was that you found lower levels of representation of women, and you found lower levels of representation in those fields of African Americans. These field-dependent ideas about brilliance and potential and capacity had no relationship at all to the, the number of uh, men who got PhDs or the number of Asian Americans who got PhDs. So there's something there about the messaging that we have potentially <coughs> about what it takes to belong, how we define brilliance, that may in many ways be undermining our fields, our students, um, and the future knowledge that we're trying to generate here with the world's complex problems. This was true, I would also point out, not just in sciences, it was true in the humanities as well. So philosophy and music composition were two examples I gave earlier. Those tend to be pretty male-dominated, and they tend to have stronger beliefs of, the, of this kind. And the same thing was true in the sciences. The more science, uh, like physics, mathematics, theoretical mathematics, embraced this idea, the fewer women there were who were present. So in essence, when are there moments when these notions about brilliance and striving and achievement actually can serve to undermine um, our students or our well-being? And I've been thinking a lot about this. I, my friend Min um, introduced me to a concept that was really interesting not so long ago, where he said, uh, ah, I see you're procrastinating because I was sending him an email about something when he knew I had a, another deadline impending. <laughs> I never heard that term before, but I'm pretty good at procrastinating. So recently, I've gotten interested in reading some of the letters that Van Gogh wrote. Um, so there is, uh, his correspondence has been preserved <coughs> and is available. You can look at it online, it's carefully. 
annotated to his family, primarily his brother Theo, as well as other famous painters of the day. And does anyone know the name of this painting? <laughs> Starry Nights, right? One of probably the most iconic um, paintings, one of the most recognizable paintings in Western culture. Um, but what's interesting about Van Gogh is the, uh, he fits the profile Randy just described a moment ago, which is that you all know he came to a tragic end at the age of 37, although there's some con a recent controversy about whether in fact it was a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He died of a gunshot wound and he engaged in some self-mutilatory behavior in which he either severed or cut off a portion of his ear. So when we look at this kind of brilliance, um, or at least that others of us in historical perspective uh, recognize this kind of brilliance. What, can we get insight to what was happening in, with his artistic temperament at the time? Is there some way in which his brilliance didn't, wasn't perceived as such or seen as a burden in some way? So I'm going to weave in the story of Van Gogh a bit through, throughout talking about the research here. So let's first talk about the what of perfectionism. Now what's really interesting about that particular painting of Van Gogh is that he actually labeled it a failure. So when he was um, at this point in an insane asylum uh, in 1889, he was engaging in a series of studies and he would send the paintings off to his brother, his brother who was supporting him financially, and his brother would then find a market or deliver <coughs> to a patron um, his paintings. And so at this point, after he had engaged in this work, this was his um, sense of it as he wrote to Bernard, a fellow painter. And yet once again, I allowed myself to be led astray into reaching for stars that are too big, another failure, and I have had my fill of that. In fact, at one point, he was telling his brother about his series of paintings and was about to mail them off. Um, and he said, there really is no good in it. Um, in talking about the painting, and he didn't send it to his brother. So to save postage, he didn't think it was worthwhile enough for him to send along with some of his other paintings at the time. And I think one of the things that really strikes me about his description of this is that he was reaching for the stars and there was failure. And I think that resonates with me so much because Ray is <coughs> already giving you a preview to the definition that we generated collaboratively um, in the in 1990, late 1980s. So perfectionism involves high standards of performance, which are accompanied by tendencies for overly critical evaluations of one's own behavior. Psychological problems associated with perfectionism are probably more closely associated with these critical evaluation tendencies than with the setting of excessively high standards. Right, so both that reaching for the stars and the failure simultaneously. And even in that early paper, um, with some preliminary analyses, we predicted that it was these critical self-evaluative tendencies that were the ones that were going to be most pernicious in terms of understanding mental health outcomes. So at this point, there have now been, as Randy said, thousands of studies that have been done using the scale that we developed back in the, um, and published in the early 1990s, um, as well as other scales. And through all of that work, what's emerged is that perfectionism is really made up of two pieces, which is why that dialectic or that tension exists. One is the evaluative concerns piece. Um, and when I describe its features, you'll, you'll be able to predict, I think, pretty quickly that this is the one that has uh, liabilities in terms of well-being. So it's um, engaging in worries or doubts, not knowing if something's good enough, not being able to, to evaluate when you are done with a particular performance or outcome. 
it's worrying a great deal about making mistakes, being preoccupied by failure. It's being inappropriately worried about um, and predicting that you are likely to encounter criticism from yourself and from others as well. Um, in this, it seems particularly important. Parents seem to be an important socializing agent in this regard, but teachers can as well when children are younger. And when there's a discrepancy, that is when your standards are really high and yet you feel like your performance is never going to reach those standards, when there's a gap between your actual and ideal self, that is uh, another example of evaluative concerns. Striving, on the other hand, is the piece, the reaching for the stars. And this is one that many of us um, probably engage in and have made us successful over time. This includes striving, setting really high standards for one's own performance. Uh, it also includes high expectations that you set for yourself, that you um, try to, as a student, get a 4-0 every semester when you begin it. Um, and mostly, the striving is often focused on the self. Uh, that is, when it's generated by yourself, it's a much more healthy aspect. Pressure can also come from others, although if the expectations are high but the criticism doesn't accompany, it seems like that is a productive kind of approach to the world, a pr productive way to be socialized as well. Now, interestingly, early on, there was some confusion. We weren't quite clear about where to fit order and organization. Many people who talk about perfectionism talk about those individuals who may color cold code file folders or have other systems of superb organization. Um, and in fact, what we find is it's really irrelevant to the construct. That is not related in any meaningful way to these two other pieces or features. This is a recent um, study that Alex, my postdoc, and I have done with one of uh, my former students, MJ uh, Rendon, who has now gotten her PhD at the University of Miami that replicates this. And one of the things, or just a couple of points, I don't expect you to want to understand all the numbers on the page necessarily, but a couple of points. One is that um, this was this structure was replicated across a very culturally diverse sample. It included over a thousand participants, um, and a really significant number of them were Latinos. So this is useful because the construct is not just one uh, that you find in white students, but actually it's much broader than that. The other piece of it is that we recruited these participants from four different institutions. One was Smith, one was Mount Holyoke, but we also included two large public universities in the South, so um, Florida International University and the University of Houston to try to uh, broaden our particular subject pool. The other piece of it is that this is called a confirmatory factor analysis, which is that you say to basically you create models and then you look at whether the data matches what you think it's represented there. So what you say is this is what I think perfectionism looks like. And then you take your data set and then you fit your model to the data. And what the computer programs tell you is how well your model fits the data. Um, and so this model had good fit with our data, but I think the thing that's really, really interesting about this is that 25 years ago, this tool didn't exist. <coughs> so in previous um, iterations and with our first development of the scale, what we did was use something called exploratory factor analysis, which is a different approach, which basically um, looks at the data in a more data-driven fashion. That is, it doesn't match it to a model. It says what's present in the data here, um, and it capitalizes on chance a little bit more. And so what's interesting is that as the tools have developed, we've still found that this bi-dimensional model really works. Um, and you can see up on top that, again, evaluation concerns and striving, and then the evaluation concerns 
uh, consists of pieces related to doubts about actions, concern or mistakes, and parental criticisms. These are the particular items from the scale. So, so doubts about actions <coughs> includes, uh, as I mentioned earlier, things like not knowing if you're completed, you've completed an action. Concern about mistakes includes items like uh, if I make more mistakes, it's as bad as failing the whole thing, or people will like me better if I don't make mistakes. Parental <laughs> criticism is uh, my, my performance was never good enough for my parents. And on the other side, for striving, parental expectations that my parents expected a great deal from me. Um, and then from personal standards, it would be I'd set very high standards for myself, et cetera. Okay. So basically, what we know after all these years is that perfectionism is multidimensional. It has two different pieces. And that's, I think, important, as you'll see in just a moment, because I want to talk about the what then of perfectionism. So, um, in talking about uh, this particular painting of Van Gogh's at Eternity's Gate, is done not long before his tragic passing. But what I find interesting about it is um, the way in which it sheds some light into uh, his own process of self-evaluation and how that's beginning to create the psychological cost for him. I have heaps of ideas for my work, and if I go on with figure painting very industriously, I may possibly find more. But what's the use? Sometimes I feel too feeble to fight against the existing circumstances. And I should have to be cleverer and richer and younger to win. So feeling like he's not quite good enough. So let me tell you a little bit about the, the literature on perfectionism's dimensions. So remember again, evaluative concerns are separated from the striving aspects. And what we reliably find is that evaluative concerns are not a good characteristic or feature to have, right? It's uh, robustly and consistently associated with all kinds of negative psychological outcomes. Anxiety of all kinds, depression, eating disorders, suicidality, as Randy already mentioned, sexual dysfunction, poor prognosis if someone finally seeks out treatment um, and goes to see a therapist because they're depressed and perfectionistic, they don't respond as well to the therapy itself. And that is whether they're taking medicine or getting psychotherapy, which is truly fascinating. Um, and in addition, I don't have it up here, but a recent um, large-scale epidemiological study up in Canada found that perfectionists, those who have high evaluative concerns, die younger. So that's not a very dire did it, but it's true. <laughs> it's really true. It exacts a physical cost as well. Achievement striving, interestingly, um, is a little more of a mixed bag. So it is associated at times with very positive things, positive affect, a sense of self-efficacy, self-esteem, some positive motivation, um, reasons for motivation, more intrinsic motivation, um, sometimes associated with better achievement, but it also has these costs. And they emerge in some studies and not in others. So achievement striving has also been associated with eating disorders and depression. Uh, a very interesting study just came out of Canada that found for psychology professors that achievement striving um, is associated with lower rates of productivity, fewer first authored papers, and lower citation indices for their publication. So there are ways in which it's good, but it also can be a bad thing as well. So um, again, a, a summary of this is that evaluative concerns, there has not yet, I don't think I'm stating, although I've not read, I have to tell you in uh, forthright fashion that I've not read all 25,000 papers uh, that have been published, but I have yet to see in a published paper 
Um, and this could be a file drawer effect, but evaluative concerns ever associated with a positive outcome. But it is robustly and consistently associated with all kinds of negative outcomes. In fact, I have yet to see, although we did find an example of this in a paper recently, our, our own data, I've yet to see a published paper that's found that evaluative concerns is unassociated with a negative outcome. So it's just a really bad set of characteristics or features for a person to have. Um, striving, on the other hand, is much more mixed. Sometimes it's associated with good things, sometimes with bad things. And we've been spending, um, me and my students and colleagues here, have been spending a lot of time trying to figure out, well, what is it about striving? Why is that mixed? Um, and we have a couple of ideas. One is that some of the items on the striving scale, the way it was initially conceptualized, have since that early conceptualization been kicked out. So um, there have been some items that actually seem to crossload on the two different subscales. So they, although they officially are called striving items, they actually relate pretty strongly to evaluative concerns. Um, and I'm totally blanking on what Alex tell me. What, what are some of those items? I'm totally blanking on what those items look like. I'll end up a second-rate person. That's right. right. So if I'm not thoroughly competent in everything I'll do, I'll end up a second-rate person. So it's, it, the first half of it is focused on the striving piece, but the second-rate person is saying that I'll basically be a failure. And yet, initially, that loaded in factor analytic studies onto the striving piece, but it really seems to be getting at, pretty significantly getting at, evaluative concerns. So when you use the original scoring that says that that item is a measure of striving, it might be that then it shows you some of those negative outcomes because in essence it's mucking up um, and contaminating the striving scale with the evaluative concern scale. So we have some cleaner versions now of that scale and when you include those cleaner versions you tend to find that the striving becomes um, either unassociated with negative outcomes um, or associated with more positive outcomes. So let me also give you another example, is that striving doesn't exist alone. All of these things actually relate. Uh, people are complicated and we can't really isolate variables very well. This is difficult when you're a psychologist who's a scientist, right? We want to isolate and look at one variable at a time. People are complicated that way. We can't ever do that. So one of the things that's interesting is that people have been looking at how striving interacts with other variables that might mediate or moderate its relationship with negative outcomes. And I just wanted to show you one example of this. Um, this was a, one of my honor students from a few years ago. Um, and in that particular paper, we found that striving was positively correlated with all these negative outcomes, social anxiety scores, depression scores, eating symptom scores. And we thought, oh, wow, huh, I wonder what's going on there. That doesn't seem um, consistent with our notion of the bi-dimensional model. But at that point, we were interested in understanding how that might relate to other kinds of risk factors. And we were interested in particular in something called contingent self-worth. This is a notion that comes out of um, Jennifer Crocker at the University of Michigan that basically talks about one sense of self-worth as being contingent. I'm only as good as the last accomplishment I had. So not a, not a solid, kind of stable sense of worth in the world, but rather only as good as the last thing that I've completed. So what we found in this particular study is that, in essence, once you included that um, particular variable in the equation, all the relationship between striving and these negative outcomes disappeared. So it seems that what striving sometimes does, perhaps it's motivated by, this, this wasn't a causal relationship, um, we couldn't do that because this was a cross-sectional study, 
but the striving may actually drive this contingent sense of self-worth and then feed into these symptoms. So in and of itself, these can be really dangerous and we have to understand them in relation to other variables in a person's environment. So when I'm giving talks about this, I, I always make sure to point out that if any of the features and value of concerns sound familiar in your students, et cetera, um, that that's a cause for concern. There's not a lot of um, finessing that you have to do there. Those are all pretty negative. And that when a student strikes you as someone who's a striver and a go-getter and really a high emphasis on achievement, there are moments that you might need to be concerned if they go along with this kind of drive that comes from a trying to prove oneself um, in some way. And the interesting thing about it too, relative to college students, is that sometimes striving can interact negatively with transition. So that when people are placed in a new context or a new environment and they're strivers, sometimes there can be a difficulty with adjustment that emerges in that new context or environment. So you think about firsters coming in where they're all big fish in small ponds and they're all coming to Smith College and looking around and seeing that everyone around them is probably just as fabulous and they probably perceive even more fabulous than, than they themselves are, that this kind of striving might then at that point transition into a risk factor for their development. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time not just talking about mental health correlates, but also the learning correlates of perfectionism, because this is something that's really interested me as an educator. So what, is it, what do those two dimensions mean for a person's learning or performance in the classroom? Um, this was a really early study that I did in my senior year of college where we brought um, college students into the lab and we presented them a writing challenge. We told them they were part of the Stanford writing. Those indi individuals who are in the high threat condition came in and we gave them this horribly written um, paragraph or essay. It was a couple of paragraphs long. And we told them that they were part of the Stanford writing assessment project. And then we wanted them to revise the essay as well as they could in about 20 minutes or so. And that what we were going to do is take their essays and mail them to Stanford. Stanford was going to grade them to some national rubric. And then they were going to get the scores back from Stanford in a couple of months. In the low threat condition, this went through IRB. <laughs> I see Phil Peake looking at me right now. Um, the low threat condition was, here's an essay, please revise it. And what you see here is the blue line were those students who reported that they had higher levels of evaluative concerns. And the purple line is those students who had lower levels of evaluative concerns. And so what's interesting here is that it didn't matter if you, if you had a student who reported low levels of evaluative concerns, it didn't matter whether you told them Stanford or just go ahead and do it. They basically had the same level of anxiety in response to the task. But for those students who were high in evaluative concerns, once you said Stanford, they were significantly more anxious. <clears throat> Now, this is on a 100-point scale, so it's about 10 points different on the scale. But you can imagine that that might create an assault on the students kind of just day-to-day -day in instances in which they are handing in lab reports and taking quizzes and going to exams, et cetera. The interesting thing about this particular study is that two Smith College faculty members, Randy Frost and Pat Scarta, mm -hmm. then um, were given the essays and they had no idea. They were blinded to condition and they rated them in terms of quality. And what we found was that students who had high, higher evaluative concerns actually wrote worse essays. They wrote worse essays. So they're more anxious and they're not performing as well. 
right? So there are real costs there to their um, response. And so more recently, I've been interested in whether you can find something similar in children. So there's been a lot of discussion about when perfectionism begins. People talk about it as a stable personality trait. Um, when people talk about their own perfectionism in adulthood, say in a clinical context or literature, they often say, I've always been this way. And so the question becomes, when does it emerge? And if it emerges early, does it have some kind of demonstrable behavior on the way a child responds to an educational context? So with another honor student of mine a few years ago, we did something similar with elementary schools. Again, with a nod to IRB, we did not threaten them in exactly the same way. That is, um, the IRB did not want us to say, this is the Stanford Writing Assessment Project, um, or some equivalent of that. So instead, what we did was we just um, had them engage in a novel challenge. And this was not even a real world challenge that they might encounter in the classroom. What this was, what it's actually a creativity task that's often used in business environments, <coughs> where you give people pictures of ordinary objects, a brick, a spoon, a hanger, and you say to them, <coughs> you have now three minutes, come up with as many creative uses as you can for this hanger, go. And then they say it out loud, and you record them, and then you code for creative um, and, and uh, viable uses of the particular object. But what we did evaluate here was <coughs> different environments in which we allowed them to self-set how many things they were going to name, or we set a low standard for them or a higher standard for them. That didn't seem to actually influence the way they responded to any of the tasks, so this has collapsed across these different conditions. But what we did find is that the kids, there were 103 elementary school children ages 8 to 12, <coughs> that the kids who had higher levels of evaluative concerns reported much more distress, significantly more distress, um, anxiety to the being in that testing situation. Before they started, they said it was more important for them to do well than the kids who had lower evaluative concerns. And afterwards, they engaged in a lot of should statements. I should have done better. So cognitively and affectively, they were, they were more motivated. They, they felt placed more pressure on themselves, were more dissatisfied with their performance, and they didn't do as well during the task itself. What was interesting is that there were no um, objective differences in their performance. So they didn't name fewer things or have fewer quality answers. So we looked at both. We looked at the number and then we looked at quality because there were some kids who said things like, I could, um, I could use a spoon for a hat. I could use a spoon for a shoulder pad. I could use a spoon for an elbow pad. And we kind of counted them all as the same thing. Um, and so we, you know, we thought maybe some perfectionistic kid would try to ilk the, bilk the system in some way and come up with a lot of fake answers. But we didn't find any relation to actual goals that they set for their performance. What was interesting is that striving had no predictive relationship to any of the variables we looked at. So kids were strivers. They didn't do better. They didn't set higher standards. They, didn't, they weren't more anxious. They didn't feel um, more satisfied with their evaluation or anything. It was totally irrelevant or unrelated, which is interesting because people who strive often think that that is the key to their success. Um, but we didn't find that in these young kids. So this is a summary of a number of studies. But basically, there are these real relationships. And I tend to think of them as cyclical. I haven't explicitly tested this in a kind of a path analytic model, but um, between evaluative concerns and learning, which is that when uh, individuals have high levels of evaluative concerns and they're placed in a learning context, 
They tend to have more negative <coughs> affectivity. Um, so they're more anxious. Um, they feel uh, probably more depressed or hopeless. Um, they have a whole set of cognitions that go along with that where they're afraid of failing. If they do well, they're often afraid that someone's going to find out that they're not quite as smart as that last score just indicated. So they're often feeling a sense of imposter syndrome, um, which is that they're faking it well enough for now, but there's an impending kind of uh, demasking that's going to happen, and everyone's going to realize they really don't belong, they're not very smart. There are a lot of should statements, I should do well, I should have done better, I should have been more prepared. Black and white thinking, which is that students will sometimes, you may have had this on occasion, will focus on the mistakes. So um, if someone got a 98 but they had one question wrong, they might spend you know an hour in your office trying to get at the nuance of why that one was wrong instead of saying an A is a top mark and I'd like to move on. Um, and behavior is, um, is usually not very helpful. It's not adaptive. So there's either inappropriate goal pursuit, which means things like they may spend hours and hours and hours in the library, but they're just not studying correctly or approaching the material correctly. They're not getting appreciably better or absorbing anything more. Um, and, and related to that, because of the negative affectivity, they often wait till the end. They procrastinate <coughs> and put off what they should be doing. So avoidance more generally. And that is often um, avoidance in a number of ways. Avoiding the behavior itself, which might mean the studying, the writing, the draft process. We've had a lot of discussions about this in the sciences, that sometimes the students who need the tutoring support the most are not the ones who are showing up. It's the B plus, A minus, A students who are spending, taking all the time in the tutors. So where are the students who are really struggling? They're, they're probably uh, avoiding procrastinating or feeling like they don't want to be exposed in relation to the other students. Um, there's a lot of self-concealment that goes on as well, which um, then fosters a sense of isolation. So they won't tell anyone that they didn't do well. They'll never share their grades. They won't go to an office hour to say to a professor, I just got a D on your exam. Um, and all of these things we know from our own making of mistakes and our own failure episodes, actually tackling, addressing the problem, reaching out and seeking solutions, that's the way in which we learn and master content, et cetera. Unless we happily happen to be one of those people who are right out of the gate not struggling with any of the material. right? But I hazard to guess that every student at um, one or more periods in uh, his or her learning life has experienced this kind of thing. Right? So, um, so let me just wrap up by saying, when we think about the two pieces of perfectionism, the evaluative concerns piece is associated with negative mental health outcomes, and it's also associated with uh, interference in learning. The striving is a little more complicated, but it's not as good as probably everyone thinks it is, because in some instances, especially when it's done in a rigid and inflexible way, that I must always be perfect, I must always get the best score on an exam, that that's when um, it may begin to exact cost, particularly during periods of transition or if there are other risk factors that are present. So really, I imagine this is usually right around the time when people are leaning forward in their chairs thinking, and now what? So you said it's terrible. What, what exactly do we do about it? Um, so, uh, you know, I love this quote by Van Gogh. I don't think he took it to heart, but um, <laughs> great things are not done by impulse, but by a series of small things brought together. And that's a close up, right, of his, uh, one of his famous wheat field studies with Cyprus. Um, so what can we do? Well, there are a couple of things, right? If you think about that interacting 
set of variables that I just talked about a moment ago, affect, cognition, behavior. The theory is that if you intersect um, or if you um, somehow impact any of those arrows, you may disrupt the cycle of negativity. And so one place where I've done a little bit of work, and this comes from my clinical training, is focusing on a person's cognition. So what is the story that you're telling yourself as you're approaching a particularly challenging learning task? Um, and as many of you know, public speaking is a way to, to prime evaluative concerns because it's one that even people who feel pretty self-assured and confident can often express these kinds of worries. So I've used it in a number of occasions for a proxy for evaluative concerns, standing up in front of a small audience in my lab and needing to give an impromptu five-minute speech about mandatory seatbelt laws or corporal punishment. And um, what I found with this is that there are ways to actually reduce evaluative concerns, and it has to do with dealing with the cognitions that students have as they're preparing for that public speaking task. So, um, in particular, what I've asked students to do is tell me what your worst fear is right now as you're prepping to go stand in front of three strangers and give a talk. And so, all of those are probably really predictable. They're afraid they're going to look stupid. They're not going to run out of things to say, that people may laugh at them, that they are not going to have a good vocabulary, etc. And then, what we do is we engage students through, through a whole series of cognitive restructuring exercises. These were um, really founded by Aaron Beck. So these are not new exercises. They're just applied in a new and different way. So what you basically do with the feared prediction is you say, well, first off, what is the evidence? So let's ground it in reality into a realistic appraisal. So how likely is it that people are going to laugh at you when you give your presentation? So what you do is you actually say, okay, how many times have you given a presentation in front of other people? And the, the answers ranged anywhere from, you know, a handful of times to 15. You say, well, how many times have people laughed at you? And you'd be surprised. Almost always people say, never. <laughs> and you say, well, given that, might a more realistic appraisal be that this is not very likely to happen? And they say, yeah, but this is going to be the time. <laughs> say, all right, given, yes. Now, I want you to think of it a different way. So I want you to decatastrophize that. So let's imagine, legitimately, someone starts laughing at you when you're speaking in this impromptu speech. How terrible would that be? And initially, students go, that would be pretty darn terrible, because nobody would want to be laughed at. But then you say, well, let's compare it to some other things. So we've asked them to compare, have you ever failed a course? How terrible would this be <laughs> if people laughed at you in relation to failing a course? How terrible would it be to lose a loved one? Has it ever happened to you? How terrible would that be? So it's putting it in the grand context of you're making more out of this. It's not likely to happen, and even if it did, you'd survive. It would be kind of crummy, but you'd live through it. So that's cognitive restructuring. It is realistic thinking. And so it's not Pollyanna thinking. It's not Stuart Smalley, um, doggone it, people like me thinking. It is, in fact, grounded in reality. And what we find is that at the end of that process, we ask people to come up with a coping statement. So a lot of times people say, um, I don't think anyone's going to laugh at me, and even if they do, who cares? And what we have them do is then go do the task. And what we found is that when students engage in this kind of realistic reappraisal, that their anxiety significantly reduces. And this works particularly well with students who are high in evaluative concerns. Um, one interesting thing from an education note, I've done this in my lab, so it hasn't been in the context of a classroom, but I've also done this in my class. So I have a handwritten cognitive exercise that I can give to my students before we're about to do public 
speaking presentations. And in one class that I was teaching, a first year seminar, we were doing a lot of presentations. I had my students monitor the number of minutes they were preparing for their speech and also engage in this process. And what I found afterwards is that, and then they rated their anxiety in class during the, the speech that itself in front of a classroom, which they were graded. Um, and what I found was that the thing that predicted how anxious they were when speaking in front of the, the classroom was predicted not by any index of preparation. Didn't matter how many minutes, none of that predicted how anxious they were. What predicted how anxious they were were what their new realistic appraisals looked like. So to some degree, all the advice we give to our students about just prepare, do it in front of your friends, do it in front of a mirror, that works to some degree potentially, but what might work even better is getting inside the heads of our students as learners, as whole people, and figuring out how to address the things that may really be getting in the way. Sometimes preparation is, is certainly the issue, but this is another possible route to take. All right, let me think. I'm just trying to make sure I'm gonna, I can get through all the rest of it. So I guess, let me see if I can just set this up, um, which is that, you know, that research in trying to address perfectionism led me to think more <coughs> broadly about what are the structures in our learning environments that are interfering with our students' ability to make the most of the opportunities that we often offer them. So if we have tutoring services but no one goes, how effective is that? If I have office hours as a faculty member but the only ones who come are the ones who are killing it in my class, how effective is that? Are there ways in which um, our context more broadly are not engaging and inviting our students to study? So um, I just have to share this one chart. This is not my data. I wish that it were. Um, this is from Claudia Golden at Harvard University. And I, I want to show this to you because I think it, it speaks really loudly about the ways in which um, uh, education for all is not equally accessible for all. So what this is looking at is how likely students were to major in economics based on their grade in their first introductory course in economics. And there's a really interesting gender difference. So men were equally likely to major in economics to Regardless of whether they got an A or lower than a B minus, they were still on course. But look at women. Every grade that, every reduction in letter resulted in kind of a significant decline in their likelihood to persist. So what is happening there? I think there are a whole variety of factors and this has been a, a big discussion that's happened in the science literature, but I think there, Women are not well represented there, and they use that as a signal, a meaningful signal of their belongingness or lack thereof. And men, that's not, it's not salient to them that they might not belong. They don't, in fact, a little oblivious, <laughs> right? That they're not looking at that and thinking, well, maybe I should go to a different department. They're just as likely to major. And some people talk about that because there's bigger and broader messaging about men as breadwinner, and this is a particularly lucrative area of study, and perhaps men are not dissuaded because ultimately if you get a job, it may fulfill the messages that society is sending you about needing to be the primary breadwinner in a, in a family. So it's context, I think that what Claudia Bolden did was she contextualized this in terms of bigger and broader messaging um, in society that we don't have control over in our classroom. So what can we do? Um, so I uh, like this quote. It, um, Van Gogh is talking about an other artist's approach. Damier, he's actually uh, referring to. But what I like about it is that he's, he's actually envious of Damier's um, style. And he said, 
Um, it must be good to think and to feel like that, to overlook and ignore a multitude of things, and to concentrate what makes us sit up and think and what touches us as human beings more directly and personally than meadows or clouds. And I love this quote because this is what touches me as a human being, right? Are my personal connections and relationships with my students. And so it was with experiences with many of my students that I started to really push and think about what are the messages that I'm sending to my students and can they be improved in some meaningful impact. So I want to talk to you just a little bit, I'm going to try to do this in a couple of minutes, about strategies that might advance inclusive excellence. This notion that we expect excellence for all and we really welcome people in, people who may not feel like they belong, which seems really important given the mission that we have here at Smith College. Um, just quickly, uh, we are one of 11 capstone institutions who were given um, million dollar grants from HHMI from the last grant, round of gra grants based on our mature and successful programming around science education. And we were told with that award that as capstone designees, we didn't ask to be, they created that after we sent in the grant. They said, you need to share your lessons for success and you need to disseminate that. So these 11 institutions have been now collaborating on our different programs and how they fit together and what they say broadly about what's necessary to really engage students in inclusive excellence. And we, we are working on a website right now to put all of those pieces together. Um, as you can see, it still says development on it. Um, and this, we hope, will be um, released by uh, late, fall, late spring at the latest. But here's what we found in terms of a thematic review of our different program elements. Is that, and none of these will probably be surprising to you, right? This was um, one in which we all participated and we said, we all have different programs, but what are the themes that unite them? What can we pluck out or understand that emerges um, and really rises above in some kind of meta-analytic uh, way uh, for what it is we do? And this was a theoretical review, not any kind of quantitative review. So the first is that engage our students in inquiry-based learning. So get really active pedagogies going in the classroom. The other is building community through mentoring or cohort programs. A third is scaffolding skills, like quantitative skills necessary for that kind of disciplinary study. And then the last is broadening the pool through outreach and engagement. So I'm going to talk really briefly about engaging pedagogies and, and maybe just to say that I'm going to talk about one of them, but there are many ways to engage. We, now at Smith, we're doing design thinking, we have knowledge building, there are clickers in the classroom, there are a whole variety of ways, but the things that we know now empirically is that um, engaging pedagogies, active learning in the classroom uh, advances all learning and it disproportionately benefits our underrepresented students. And the reason it does is for real important mechanistic reasons. They spend more time on the classwork when you actively engage them in the class. So they actually report that they're spending more time on problem sets and homework, uh, et cetera, when you're engaging them in this way. And then the other is that it tends to build more community. They feel sense more, more of a sense of belongingness and connection to the classroom environment and to the professor. People have heard us talk about knowledge building at Smith. Many of us have been involved in it. We've brought together more recently connecting to design thinking because there are a ton of overlaps. But the idea there is when we engage our students in, in kind of messy thinking with open-ended questions, we can push their thinking further. And um, I was just going to show you how 
you can use tools online for students to have discourse. This is my students in my research methods class having discourse, believe it or not, about concepts as exciting as random assignment, mm -hmm. um, selection, regression, threat, internal validity. Now, the, I thought that would get more of a laugh than it did. I like that. Thank you, Annalise, for giving me a But these are things that are not exciting for students to think about. This is a required course where people are like, oh, gosh, I have to research methods and we're going to talk about internal validity. If I said to any of them, can you please talk about how exciting it is to think about random assignment? there would be crickets in the room, right? But this is them engaging in conversation in relation to a real life data set that they've analyzed and they need to make sense of. And the one thing that I just want to say about that approach is that I was able to look at my final lab reports when I used this approach and juxtaposed it with when I used a very traditional approach the year prior, which is that students worked on their labs individually and I did a lot more lecturing. And I was able to code them about whether students got mastery of some of the most important concepts from research design. And what I found is that the knowledge building students significantly outperformed my students who I taught with the traditional approach on their final lab reports. And I think this is um, really striking because the knowledge building students, this is the first lab report they wrote all semester long. My traditionally taught students had written three prior and had gotten a ton of feedback from me individually. And yet, through the discourse and the conversation with the students, they were able to push their ideas much further and, and gain a lot more information and mastery in my course. I'm going to skip that. Um, and then talk about building resilience through community. Um, community is strong, right? Embedding students in context and relationship um, to you, to others. This is what we say, the power of the liberal arts, residential liberal arts colleges. This is why online um, MOOCs aren't going to take over what it is that we do because we pride ourselves on the individual connections we make with our students and create in our in our seminars and our small classes um, and so I just wanted to make that point that that the creating community is something that we need to do mindfully and intentionally um, and within that what often happens is students correctively learn some of the things that can get in the way of learning because if you're in community if you're talking about your ideas online and you're expected to test out your understanding together engaging in discourse then it's okay if you don't know the answer because you're not expected to know it quite at that moment you need to know it later on right so there's something that gets gets uh, the, the student who tends to self conceal or isolate out of his or her habit and, and sees, oh, I'm not the only one who doesn't understand here. Oh, we can work on it together to work uh, on our knowledge um, collaboratively. And I wanted to tell you uh, about some really hot off the presses data related to AIMS outcomes, because this is one of the ways we've been building community in the sciences. This is a paper that is um, currently under review. We just submitted less than a month ago. And what we found, the purpose of the AIMS College program was to specifically target those individuals who tend to be historically underrepresented in STEM. Um, we have a high proportion of underrepresented minorities, Pell Grant recipients who are, lo are low income students, as well as first generation college students. And what we found is since AIMS's launch, comparison to the baseline of that group of students, Students who've become our AIMS scholars have shown some significant improvements across a variety of markers of what I think we all would think are learning successes. One is that their biology and chemistry gateway course GPA has significantly improved. 
They have higher rates of persistence in the life and natural sciences, meaning that if they come in and say they want to major in STEM, they end up majoring in STEM instead of finding something else to major in, which we've had a lot of arguments about, about whether that's a good thing or not, um, because we also believe that if students are not driven away from STEM, but instead are welcomed and find a passion elsewhere, we consider that a success. Um, but still, we think that if there is some natural inclination to enjoy STEM, that we should certainly not be driving them away. Um, so they should be persistent. Um, and then we find higher rates of advanced research participation as they get older. Here's one bit of data in persistence. The blue line is our AIM scholars, um, and the gold line is our majority students. A couple of things of note. One is that SAT scores did not change at all for our AIM scholars. So this is not better students getting in. We've had wonderful, we've been breaking records with our applicant pool, which may think that may make you think that over time what's happened is that there become more competitiveness and that our AIM scholars may just get better quality student over time, but that's not the case, at least if you use that particular measure. I think we also, when did we compare high school GPA? I can't, I don't think, I, I don't recall if we use that as a baseline. But it's, this is not just due, as far as we can tell, to a better starting cohort. And the other is that there are some places where we um, didn't show improvements. And one place in particular you may notice is advanced research participation in the life sciences did not, excuse me, did not improve. But part of that we think has to do with the fact that the research labs in the life sciences are pretty much filled to capacity. They're quite large at this point in time which has led to some, one of our programmatic responses, which is thinking, how can we change our classrooms and our courses so that we can create um, communities of scholars who are engaging in authentic research within the context of their typical 16 credit load here at Smith. All right, um, so what to do about perfectionism? Um, you know, I think cognitive intervention is great, but also thinking about the ways we teach, the way we build community, the way that we engage our students in, uh, activities that are authentic to our disciplines, the ways in which we can cultivate deep, passionate, joyous, and creative learning comes from Bain's book. Um, in community, that to me is the best way for us to battle perfectionism. And I will leave you with this last quote from Van Gogh um, about attempting to achieve success without despair, and it really is about persistence and putting together those small gestures that in total begin to create uh, real change. Thanks.